if you would assume a posture of prayer, prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, how majestic is your name in all the earth, and how wonderful are your works from of old. God, you do not have some wisdom. God, you are the source of all wisdom. You don't have a truth. You are the truth. And so, God, we come and we thank you for your wonderful salvation to us, which has made dead hearts like ours alive. God, we want to use that new life we have and the blood pumping through us, the faith you've given us to give all of our affections and worship and attention to your great name. And so be exalted among this people, God, through your word. Give us clarity to see your word as it truly is. Come and pastor us. Holy Spirit, come and bring conviction of sin and repentance and holy things to our hearts that we might live to you. God, rescue us from the junk in movies that we filled our minds with this week. And restart us about what really matters today. God, this is your word. And so come and, and teach it for your great name's sake. We pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said. Amen. Man, if you've got a Bible, uh, open it to Mark chapter 12. Verse 28 through 34 is what we're going to tackle. Let's jog a little bit. In the previous weeks where we were at, uh, we had wave after wave after wave crashing upon Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem. And the first wave being that of the Pharisees and Herodians who came and wanted to trip Jesus up with politics. Jesus, are you in this camp or in, are you in that camp? And so the Herodians and the Pharisees were trying to get him canceled like old school style by where he landed on politics. And Jesus dealt with them as we examine unbelievably brilliant. The next wave that crashed upon, we talked about last week, were the Sadducees. This was a minority party that was different from the Pharisees. The Pharisees were, if you will, the conservative theological party of the Jews in that day. Matter of fact, one odd observation we discussed is how often that Jesus actually agrees with the Pharisees. And that seems odd to us because at the same time he often rebukes them. But they believed in the resurrection. They believed in demons and angels. They believed God's word. They believed in the whole canon of scripture. Juxtaposed against them was this liberal theological. And again, this is not political per se. While some people's liberal theology bleeds into politics, they were the liberal theological. They were the progressives in the Sadducees. They didn't hold to all the scriptures. They cut out parts that disagreed with them. And they only held to the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they came to Jesus, ripping a verse out of context, washing it of its meaning and intention by God, and tried to use it as a weapon against Jesus to undermine his teaching. Here's what each wave is trying to do. They're trying to put Jesus in jeopardy. They're trying to put him in a tight spot. They're trying to steal some of his time. Jesus is too famous. He's become too popular. He's becoming too powerful. And so we've got we've to turn this Jesus down a notch. And so wave after wave from different sides are coming 
at Jesus. And now, let me say this because a lot of us don't understand worldwide Christianity. We're very narrowed here. Do you know that like in the East, say in like India and Pakistan where Christians are there, they are considered liberals because they are attacking the established animism and paganism and Islam of the East. In the West, we're considered conservatives because we won't agree with the sexual ethic of our culture. We believe in absolute truth. We do not believe truth is subjective. Here is what Christians worldwide have to deal with that Jesus is dealing with here. We are always fighting a war on two fronts. We are always fighting a war on two fronts. And I could go into it even from the Reformation. The reformers came to the abuses that they saw in the 17th century. And they saw the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. And they reformed the church back to the scriptures. Away from a lot of superstition and non-biblical additions that the Roman Catholic Church at that time had added. While at the same time a lot of people don't understand A lot of heretical cultish groups took the Reformation as an opportunity to abandon actually good things. So what the reformers had to do was fight a battle on this front with Roman Catholicism and fight a battle on this front for people that denied the gospel, denied the Trinity, or denied essential doctrines. Church, we are always, like Jesus, going to fight battles on multiple fronts. We're always going to fight battles on multiple fronts. And this is the same for Jesus. Now, what Jesus has been doing has been getting into debates, arguments, conflict. And for some of us in the room that are just allergic to conflict, as soon as we see this about Jesus, we're like, man, like, I would rather just keep my head down and try to keep the peace. Jesus cares more about truth than some superficial unity or peace that would damn people to hell. And so we've been discussing this, that the point of your Christian life is not ultimately to be nice. Now, I love kindness. It's a fruit of the Spirit. But manners and niceness is not the point that Jesus died on the cross for you. Holiness is. And when niceness comes in conflict with holiness, what we see is Jesus be holy. He's holy. Uh, so I, the guy that we're going to hear today is a guy that's going to listen to Jesus debate and be drawn in. He's going to listen. So we've dealt with Herodians and Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, we're going to deal with one guy today, a scribe. Now, we've discussed scribes before. Like, in the past, they were like a SEAL Team 6 of intellectuals that they sent to Jesus to try to take him down. The scribes were experts in biblical interpretation. Many of them would have memorized the whole Bible, whole Testament, word for word. They would say that the scribes could take a book of the Bible, like uh, Malachi, and they could roll it in a circle take a pen and stab it through, and they could tell you every single letter that pen would hit. These are not people that knew the Scriptures. This was people that their whole lives oriented around it. The equivalent is somebody with degrees, somebody with position, 
Even more than this, they were lawyers. They knew not only what the word said, but they could argue positions from it and teach it. We have a scribe who has heard Jesus debate. Listen, there's a reason why certain errors in our cultures have to be met with gospel truth. Because we don't know who is on looking. In Christianity, we call this apologetics. Apologetics is defense of the faith. A lot of times when you will see even atheists and Christians debate, or, or Christians and Muslims, or debates that we have in the public forum, a lot of times the two people debating never change each other's minds. You know what I'm saying? Like you'll see them debate and they never change each other's minds. You know whose minds they do change? The crowds. The crowds. Uh, I, was, I was at the gym uh, like a couple weeks ago. And uh, that's the primary place for me to get to know lost people and share the gospel. And I got in a conversation with a dude that I've been trying to walk out the faith with about uh, um, the Byzantine Empire, which I know is compelling to you. Okay? And I was just discussing what I loved about the Byzantine Empire. And um, a lot of people, we, we talk about Roman Catholicism. Nobody has any concept about the Eastern Empire and things that went on there. And I just discussed the art and the beauty and the truth and the conflicts and civil wars and what led to the downfall of the Byzantine Empire and just things that I love about it. And while I was there, there was like two or three guys listening and they just stopped. And, and I went off on one of my geeking out history things where I do this thing like real hard. All right. And it's like, it's like Asperger's, but it's, it's with history, all right? And, and I do this. My wife was up there shaking her head. Um, and so I just, I, I, I'm, this is just what I do, okay? And so I got there. And after I left, I, I, I was kind of discussing, and they were asking me questions about Christianity and how it fits. I left, and, and, a, and a, a, I mean, just a friend, a lost friend that I have and have been building a relationship with and, and witnessing to, pulled me as outside. He said, he says, that's so interesting what you're sharing. He's like, can I say something to you? And you kind of tell me, you know, am I way off? Am I painting with a broad brush? Am I stereotyping? He said, he came to me and said, I just have this question. Is it wrong for me to say that most wars throughout all of human history have been created by religion? He's like, is it a broad brush? Is that stereotype to say that most wars are created by religion? And I said, oh, it's not a stereotype or painting with a broad brush. It's just wrong. Just wrong. It, stereotypes and broad brushes don't matter. Now, here's the thing. That's not necessarily the nicest thing I could have said, right? I could have been polite and be like, you know, I think there's a lot of validity. That it's just wrong. In the 20th century, we had atheistic humanism of Mao Zedong, of Stalin, of Pol Pot from different countries. In just 100 years, in the 20th century alone, killed more people for atheism than the previous 19 centuries combined. We had more wars based clearly off the principles of atheism than we've had of religious wars for the previous 19 centuries combined. And he's like, I've never thought about that before. And we begin to say, he's like, well, why can't we just all be good and, you know, like love your neighbor you know, that kind of stuff. Why can't we all just be good? And I said, well, let me just pause for a second. One, you just quoted Jesus. So, well done. He's like, for real? Yeah, I love your neighbor thing. You just didn't take it out of the sky there. And I said, and the second thing I want to ask you is, 
define for me, why don't everybody be good? Define for me the word good. Based on what? Historical document, Bible, truth. Who defines what is good? As an apologist used to say, some people believe as cannibals that they can eat their neighbors and some people believe that they should love their neighbors. Who gets to decide what is good? So here's the thing. A lot of times our debates may not win the person we're debating, but sometimes it invites the people that are listening in. And as Christians, we can say compelling and stunning biblical truths and thirsty people that are salted with our conversations will thirst after living water. And I think that's our due today. He is a scribe. Look at this, verse 28. Jesus answering disputes well, he's going to win the scribe. And one of the scribes came up and heard them, look at this, disputing. Paul says in his epistles that we destroy every argument and lofty thing that exalts itself up against the knowledge of God. And I know that that Bible verse contradicts what you have heard in your life that you cannot argue anyone else into the kingdom. Fair enough. You can't do anything to get anybody in the kingdom. That's the Holy Spirit. But if argument and dispute and loving people with truth doesn't have its place, then the Apostle Paul was sinning. Okay. Let's back that one up a bit. Disputing with one another and seeing, this this isn't what he sees about Jesus, that he, Jesus, answered them well. This is your apologetics. This is how you have to defend your faith to your family members, to your co-workers, to those you run into at Walmart that are clearly lost. Answer them well. And he asked them, which commandment is the most important of all? So if I had to describe basically this scribe in comparison to the cats that came before, I would argue, maybe you would follow this, that he is... I don't know. He's so low and he's not in a group. He's interested. He's open. He's considerate. He's maybe going to, what we're going to see is more balanced, more honest, more thoughtful, less biased, more objective, more sense. Or maybe at the very least, maybe you'll agree with this. He's at least coming to listen. Right? And he's open. He's like, for me, Nicodemus, who came to Jesus at night. He was stunned by Jesus' word. He overcome the filters of those around him. Others had tried to poison the well and tell him who Jesus was. But he, he had to see for himself, so he rolls to Jesus. He is a person of peace. He's an open person from a hostile group. Because Jesus, even in the remainder of this chapter, is going to warn us about these scribes. Like the group that he's from is hostile to Jesus. But he's open. Now this this convicted me, if I could just be real with you. Because given uh, the moral climate of Colorado and uh, the moral climate of Durango, you can find me complaining about Durango more often than I'm trying to reach it. 
you can find me complaining about this group that in my mind I consider hostile to Jesus and instead of looking for the solo scribes who are open. Is, is it this true for you as well? Is there a group at your workplace that... You, tell me who you've convinced yourself is not going to get saved at your workplace. Because they vote a certain way. Right? Or the lifestyle they live. Talk to me about who in your family you've convinced yourself against Scripture and, and against the glory of God that in your fa- they're not going to get saved. Right? Tell, tell me who... Is it impossible for the southern Utes to get saved? T- tell me, the Mormons, like is that... Im- have we convinced ourselves that because the group is allergic to the troop, truth as a group, that there's not going to be individuals that God's going to use us to reach. See, he's from a hostile group. But he's an individual who is open. Are you railing against your mission field or are you reaching your mission field? I love his question, right? He says, what commandment is most important of all? Or which one is first? What your translation has. This is the, uh, he's asking what is the first command? This is really not the order of the commands. It's the, which one is of first importance? Which one is primary, foremost? Um, uh, basically, this is what I love about his question. He's asking what is the priority? The what is the chief duty of every human being created by God? The chief duty of every human being created by God. Consider this. The worst decisions of your life centered on Jesus' answer right here. The worst decisions... The ones that cost you big were moral failures that answered this question wrong. This is more than a moral obligation. This is, listen church, this is what you were created for. This is your purpose. This is where you discover your meaning. This is most important. He's not saying, let's have a debate about a br- brothers having a wife and then seven brothers. and like He's not talking about obscure things. He's like not even talking about alcohol. Think about how often Christians have debated about alcohol and not come and debated and relished the central things of the gospel. We as Christians can make secondary things primary. This brother's coming and saying... Give me the meat and potatoes. Give me the heart. Give me the main thing. Give me what is of central first importance. I love this question. Because anything that we do with our lives that contradicts this will absolutely kill you. It'll curse you. 
the love of things in place of God, old school word, idolatry, is the highest, therefore, crime of humanity. He's not coming with some obscure passage. He's saying, Jesus, give me the heart of the law. Give me the heart. Now, this goes into our tie if you got the slides. This brings us to Jesus' answer. Jesus answered, the most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all. Notice the story before, one of the things that the progressive theologians, the Sadducees, would not do. They would not love God with all. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater, and I'll come back to that, greater than these. What Jesus quotes is something that, or what Jesus uh, paraphrases or what Jesus gives is something that rabbis would do all the time. Teachers would take what they would say is the 613 commands of the Old Testament. Now there's debate about whether there's actually 613 or how many commands, actual laws are in the Old Testament. And they would try to summarize them. So if you've ever thought about the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments in themselves are a summary, the Decalogue is a summary of all of the law. Jesus, even further, along with other teachers of the time, were asked to summarize further what is the main thing that summarizes all of the law. And he gives this answer, which has its roots in Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. This is called the Shema, which we read to open the service. hundred years after Jesus, we know that Jews would read this in the morning and in the evening. The Shema gets its name from the first word that says here. If you see the word here, right there, H-E-A-R, that's the Hebrew word for Shema. It's like pay attention, recognize, eyes up, listen to this thing. So the word here, or pay attention, became the title for this thing that Jews have as almost like a central tenet of their faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, ironically, if we're reading this in English, but if you actually had this in Hebrew, what you actually have is, it says, uh, um, Lord, God, God, one, or God, 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 one, is how it actually has in Hebrew, which Christian theologians would come and say, the Trinity composition of who God is as one God in three persons is even in the central affirmation of the Shema because it basically says God, 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 one. Okay? And so hero is the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love. Now, what's interesting about this is, is that most people in their moral, philosophical reasoning do not begin with love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your might. Now, inside of this word might here in Hebrew, some scholars would say is the idea of both physical strength and mental strength. And so sometimes words in other language can have uh, things contained within it that the language it's translated into doesn't. So this is why we'll see in Jesus, he's going to lay out four and include mind and strength. But a lot of scholars say within the word here for might, you have 
both mind and strength. Verse 6, and these words I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. That's called discipleship. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. If you're sitting in your house or you're out somewhere, that's like a really Hebrew way of saying dang near everywhere. All right? Uh, that's Oklahoma term. Sorry about that. And then you walk by the way. When you lie down and when you rise. You know what's in between lying down and rising? Everything. It's like basically everywhere. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and you sh they shall be to you as frontlets between your eyes. That's a curious thing to say. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. These are also Hebrew ideas. The idea originally meant your hands you see all the time. We use language like this in English. English where we say, I, oh yeah, 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 I know it like the back of my hand. We use language like that because if there's any part of your body you know intimately, it's the back of your hand. The frontlets of your eyes is like if something's right up in your face, you understand it. It's like I see it. It's like right here in the center. The gates of your house is like something that you would see all the time. And this is one of the reasons why many Christians, even in this room, have scripture around their house that reminds them of the truth of God. This is an old practice that has biblical roots. Now for the Jews, if you go to the next slide, they took this in <clears throat> sort of a literal sense. So the box that is on the gentleman's head actually contains passages of the Old Testament. What are they putting there? They're making it as frontlets between their eyes. The guy on the right is taking straps. If you go to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, you'll see them strapping up people. And this is not them getting ready for like a WWF wrestling match. Uh, Ultimate Warrior style, shout out. This is them wrapping the, the, the Old Testament scripture as a box on their hands. Because they're saying this is what they consider the fulfillment of that. Do you see the literal versus is God's word at the center focus of your life? Well, they're like, how about we make it as a box and a headband? Right? And so this is basically how the Jews would interact with this thing. Here is what Jesus has engaged with this man about. I mean, this is theology. This is philosophy. This is morality. The early church, and I'm reading a fantastic book about evangelism in the early church, and I highly recommend it, said that the early church saw Christianity when they preached it to the Greek world as the true philosophy. Philosophy comes from phileo sophia, the love of wisdom. God in Jesus coming to earth was the holy wisdom of God. He is wisdom personified. Matter of fact, in the Byzantine Empire, see I'm about to nerd out right now, their largest church is called Hagia Sophia, Holy Wisdom. They said Jesus is the wisdom of God come to earth. And this is how they used philosophy or engaged with philosophy to share the gospel. Let me put it to you another way. Jesus is the supreme objective reason. Jesus is the answer to all of Plato's questions in the dark. And so what we have inside of this verse and Jesus' response is a moral reasoning. Now, let's check this. And I, I don't have time to unpack all this, but let's just look at a few things about Jesus' answer and then I'll, I'll attack what I can attack. First thing, Jesus says there's no greater commandments to these. So, 
no greater, that's a comparative language, means that while all sin, even one sin of gossip, would lead you to death and rightly damn you to hell, that not all sins are equal. While they all will judge you, all lead to death, they're not all equal because not all commands are equal. Two second observation from this thing, and this is something I want you to sink your teeth into this week. Every sin that you've ever committed and that I've ever committed is really just a failure to love God. Every sin that you've committed, that I've committed, is really just a failure to love God. This word for loving God is connected to a reverential fear of God. It's devotional. It is the purest, noblest, highest form. It is a complete love. I know this is going to be really hard for you to understand as Americans, but it is absolutely not describing a feeling. It is describing choice and action. And I think some of us that are married here would understand this, that we can not feel very in love with our spouse, but we don't cease to be uh, in covenant with them. We don't cease to love them. See, the Bible has a definition of love that would be so strange to a culture that's wrapped up in feelings. It is a love of God that is in response to God first loving us. Um, if you, let me kind of break this down one way. Okay, if you cheat on your spouse, right? If you cheat on your spouse, um, I think we could all agree here, Christian and non, that's probably not loving your neighbor, right? Are you with me on that so far? Like the neighbor. That includes the people living in your house. They don't got to be in a different house to be your neighbor. I'm talking about the neighbors in your house. You're not loving your neighbor by cheating on your spouse. But above even cheating on your spouse, your first sin is against God. Why? Because He gave you breath in your lungs. He gave you life. Right? He gave you a mind and a body. As a steward, he gave you a bride or a husband. He gave you a marriage. And you turned the good graces of God and you refashioned them into a nuclear weapon to hate your neighbor, who happens to also be your spouse. So before it first, and before you get put on trial for a lack of love to your neighbor, you're put on trial for a lack of love to God. Does that make sense? It is this love which um, transforms us from God, and we share that transformation with others. When I um, love God, I do it through serving my neighbor. And when I reject God, I show it by sinning against my neighbor. My neighbor 
is a God-ordained conduit by which through them I come and show my love and worship and reverence to God or my lack thereof. Does that make sense? Are we tracking with this so far? So I got to go to Louisville, Kentucky this week and I was, uh, got to sit under some great preachers, great scholars and thinkers. And uh, I, had, I did college ministry for 10 years. And so I had a group of students, about 12 dudes, that are now in ministry. Um, one of them came in from Germany. He's planting churches over there. One is in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan and God's pastoring and serving in different capacities and doing different things. We all kind of met together and kind of spent a few days this week um, just setting under the word, um, deep diving into some different things. It was absolutely rejuvenating for me. As much as any of the teaching, it was just good to be around these brothers whom I love and they love me back. And one of my dudes that's up in Michigan, he's just having a hard time. It's like snows all, it's like Canada and then back it up a little bit. You know what I'm saying? And so he's just struggling, trying to plant a church up there. It's just hard, he's having a hard go of it and he's incredibly isolated. And so he doesn't have a lot of people partnering with him, not a lot of people, allies that are there with him. And when he came in uh, to this, this week, you could see him starting to change as we spent time together. And he noted it. He said, this week of just being around the love that's in this brotherhood, is, it like changed me, but not for the worse. It changed me more into the person I really am. And left to myself, I just keep wandering into these wrong versions of myself. But sitting here, reminded of the love of God to me, through the brothers that he gave me, has made me into the right version of who I'm supposed to be. See, God-ordained conduit. God-ordained conduit. Now, I find it interesting that he talks about, in particular, loving God with mind and strength. The word for strength is fascinating. Now, some scholars will say this means the strength of your heart, the strength of your soul, the strength of your mind. And they disagree about what all of those words mean. At the very least, one of them means the core of your being, your heart, your affections, what you're passionate about. It's the seat or throne of your heart. It's your volition. It's your will is meant to love God. Your mind is your thinker, all right? And your rationality is supposed to love God. Your emotions, your feelings. Ain't nothing wrong with emotions as long as they're ordered by God's word. And then it's the strength. The word here that he uses in Greek for strength is connected in the Old Testament to the word umph, which I thought is fascinating. It's like the umph. Here's what it is. If you go to the gym or you pick up a package from Amazon and you didn't think it was that heavy and you bend over to pick it up and there's an involuntary sound that comes out your body, that's the Hebrew word for strength here. Right? That, uh, you know, have you ever been over to tie your shoes and realize you just worked out? That's what it's talking about. It's like, um, there's some guys in the, it, here that work out and stuff, and they work out way too hard for me. And Chris Krug is one of them. And he likes to go to the edge of death and then back it up a little bit when it comes to working out. His idea is, for him to get better, he has to work out till absolutely blackout level exhaustion that ain't me friend all right 
So I, I go there, and he likes to get to this edge. The word here is exactly kind of that idea. It's like when you're at the limits of your own ability, and you're exhausted, that's when you're starting to tap into the strength. That's the ump. The mind here is also curious because he's not dealing with a community college grad. This dude didn't get his GED, all right? Nothing wrong with that, but this just isn't this guy's story. He comes to him and says, that horsepower that God gave you upstairs, you should use it to glorify God, right? Jesus deals with, preaches to, and reaches intellectuals. And there's a place for them in the church. This is why I despise the theology that comes in and says that everybody in the early church were just blue collar. Peter was, but have you read Paul? Paul studied under Gamaliel, the leading scholar of his day. When God wanted a little horsepower in the mission organization, he went and got him a Paul. And I know that inside of some evangelical churches, there's this idea of anti-intellectualism. But you know, there's many scientists, including Francis Collins, who was a part of mapping the human genome, who are believers. You can go throughout church history, and you will be surprised of the heavy hitters that God calls to himself. The gospel reaches everybody. You hear what I'm saying? So, we come to this idea that God first and foremost deserves our love and passion and joy. Then secondarily, Jesus talks about in verse 31, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now this gets tricky for us, doesn't it? Because aren't we raked over the coals by our culture? Because any time that we disagree with our culture... They will say that Christians are being unloving. Right? Like as though we need the world to tell us what our Bible says. I don't know about you. Let, let me just give you an illustration. I know this is going to be hard to believe. Say for instance you have a friend that is in some form of sexual sin. It could be fornication, you know, adultery, or God forbid, homosexuality, Right? And if you come to their lifestyle and you say, I do not believe this is God's best for your life. I believe this lifestyle is cursing you. And I believe Jesus has better for you than the sexual sin that you have built your identity around. Does not even the idea of what I just said make you shrink a little bit? As like, if this hits the internet, there goes our Facebook page. Right? If you were loving, wouldn't you affirm my lifestyle and agree with me? Doesn't your Bible say to love your neighbor? Yeah, but it says that I'm to love God first. And I cannot love Him and at the same time lie to you. I cannot love him and redefine loving you as co-signing on whatever trend the world has cooked up for today. And so, matter of fact, 
what love is going to look like is speaking truth in that love. I, I would argue this. Do you know the friends that you have in your life? I mean, the best friends that you have in your life are not the ones who agree with everything you do. God forbid, your spouse doesn't agree with everything you do. Your friends, the ones that really love you, Proverbs would say, are the ones that love you enough to wound you with the truth if necessary. All right? I love my neighbor, but I love God first. Then it gets into this idea of like yourself. Okay, so let me, I'm not trying to drive by guilt you, and I'm not trying to beat you up, but I'm going to talk about myself and things that I interacted with this text, and then if it applies to you, then we can repent together. Cool? All right? So don't walk out of here feeling shame. I want want you walking out of here loving God with all of your heart. Okay? First thing, it says love your neighbor like yourself. I, I comb the hair of one person more than any other person on the earth. Surprising as that may be. Even though my girls look a little crazy sometimes when I do it. Right? I have spent more money in my life on one person. I've spent more time thinking about one person than I have any other person on the earth. You guessed the person yet, right? Right? I consider this person. Right? I think about this person all the time. Do you know that I never had to take a class on being self-absorbed? Like, we don't have to have seminars to say, you know what you need to do? Is like yourself a little more. Like, we come out the womb thinking this whole thing's about us. Okay? So here's the thing. Round two of this. I don't believe that the vast majority of you have a discipline issue when it comes to Christianity. I think you're incredibly disciplined for that which you love. Because you'll get up at 5 a.m. to go ski. But you'll show up late to church. Right? Right? You will read garbage on social media for an hour and then talk about how you can't get in the Word. I'm talking about me, not you. Right? One thing that social media has proved, I love what John Piper says about this, is that our lack of prayer is not due to a lack of time. We don't have a discipline issue because we can take off for vacation on a week trip to go hike in the mountains for entertainment but we won't take that same vacation to go take the gospel to people around the world. And I get it. I feel this. So I would say this, is that we, I don't think that we, by and large, in this church have a discipline problem. We've got a love problem. We've got a heart condition. Or as the Bible would say, we're double-minded. It's that we siphon off so much of our love to our hobbies that we give God the leftovers. Third, third, third round. We have an unbelievable memory in this church. 
great minds. You're like, you don't, I don't even know where I'm at right now. I get it, okay? You've already lost your keys since you come in. I think we have unbelievable memory in here. Because for some of you, if I asked you to talk to me about cars, you will give me a two-hour dissertation. Or if I asked for movie quotes, you got it. If it's trivia about Harry Potter, you're in. Right? If I ask for country song lyrics, there's real sinners in here, people. Right? But if I asked you, the Word of God, eternal, everlasting, all-powerful, the Word of God that your coworker is going to need next week when their life is falling apart and they're thirsty, did you memorize it this week? Did you meditate on it? Did you saturate your life with it? See, the problem is not your memory. I mean, for a couple of you it is. But most of you, it's not your memory. It's not your discipline. It's that we break the primary command to love God with everything. We give Him our leftovers. So, Listen to what his response is to this unbelievably revealing thing. Uh, verse 32. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. Well, ain't that refreshing for Jesus? <laughs> Just like, what did you say? That's right. Um, could you imagine coming to God who wrote the Bible and being like, God, you're so right about that thing you wrote. Um, if you love the Bible, you're going to love me. Um, so, you have truly said that he is one, and there is none besides him. No other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one neighbor as oneself, is much more, listen to this answer, than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Right? For all my cattle ranchers in here. You bring the whole herd in. Doesn't matter. Better. Love God with everything. Love neighbor as self. And when Jesus saw, he answered wisely. Now, pause. They're going to go back and forth here for a second. So what just happened? Ask Jesus a question. Jesus answers with Bible. He's going to respond back in the most scribal way ever. He's going to quote six or seven passages from five different books. i got to give you a little bit of this. Because here's what he's doing. He loves the Bible, and he's going to play catch with Jesus. They're just going to bounce theology off of each other. Um, so here's some of the quotes. Some of your Bibles are going to have this in, in cap locks. This is going to hint at you that he is quoting the Old Testament. One thing that he does is he quotes back to Jesus the source material that Jesus got his statement from, Deuteronomy 6.4. Um, the fact that there are none besides him is Deuteronomy 4.35. In Isaiah 45, 21, to love God with your all, right, that we talked about, that's Deuteronomy 6, 5, also from the Shema. To love your neighbor as yourself is Leviticus 19, 18. You, you don't know Leviticus because that's where your Bible plan goes to die, but there's great stuff in there. Um, and then more than all burnt offerings is 1 Samuel and the book of Hosea. 34, so just, what are they doing here? They're just chopping it up. They're going back and forth. 
He's entering into something that he loves. He loves the Bible. He loves talking about God's word. Jesus answers beautifully. He responds wisely. Jesus saw that he answered wisely. He said to him, church, you got to get this. You are not far. Underline that. Not far from the kingdom of God. Then I love the next part. After that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. It's like, all right, that thing ran, that's good enough, all right? He answers, not far. Now, in my mind, remember what we're talking about here, the law. Not far? Come on, Jesus. Compared to these other dudes, can't we let the brother in? Not far? Won't you just say you're in the kingdom? He says, no, you're not far. Right? Like, he has, uh, he, Jesus is like, you understand the law, you understand God's will, you get God's meaning for your life, his goal for your life, you get your purpose in life, you're not far. And this is exactly, listen to me church, this is exactly what the law does for you. This is the use properly of the tool of the law. It ushers you to the doorstep of Jesus. It ushers you to the doorstep of Jesus. But the door is opened by grace alone. Not how clever and intelligent you are to understand the law. You walk through the door through faith alone and not the keeping of the law. Because by the keeping of the law, I don't know about you, when I just read the stuff that you know we could feel a little shameful about, I have not used my mind all the time full on to the glory of God. I know basketball facts about dumb stuff. Can I be real? My affections have went more after watching a movie than I have to the throne and loving God. If by keeping the law, I'm getting in the kingdom, I'm never getting in the kingdom. The law is a gift of God to show me that by keeping the law, I can't get in the kingdom. But it can bring me to the doorstep to make me realize I need grace. I need grace. I need Jesus who died on the cross for all my not loving God, not loving neighbor nonsense that I've done in my life. I need the cross where my sins are forgiven and my guilt is taken away. Do you hear me? It can get you to the doorstep, but it ain't getting you in the door. Only Jesus does that. So he says you're not far. Which is so ironic. When we talked about the Sadducees last time, when Jesus used the word for error, he used the Greek word planeo, which is mean like you're like a planet, you're a wandering body, you're like off the reservation. They're like super far off. This dude is like, he's knocking on the door, man. Right? He's not far off. So um, I, I met a, a Muslim named Abraham and... Uh, we got in a, a discussion in Kentucky about the gospel and Jesus. And what is so brilliant, and I just prayed for you when I thought about this, was exactly the things that we have talked about throughout this book as 
fully God, fully man, that Jesus is fully God, exactly what scripture says is exactly what he wanted to attack in me. And so if you didn't pay attention to this teaching through Mark where we talked about Jesus is God in the flesh and you run up on a Muslim, you're not going to be prepared if you didn't pay attention. So we discussed Jesus is the God man, but he wanted to get into works. And I um, asked if you were to die right now and go to God's heaven, what would be the basis by which you say, God, by, by what are you saying that I'm going to heaven versus going to hell? His answer, and I how Islam is just so blatant about what they're wrong about. He comes and he says, I'm getting into heaven because my good works outweigh my bad. I honestly believe most people live under that error. He says, because I have an angel and a demon on my shoulder, one tell me to do good, one do bad, and if at the end of my life my good deeds outweigh my bad, then I will get into heaven. And so I said, can I tell you like a response to that? He said, yeah. I said, look, say um, I kill somebody. Say it's your mom. And burn down your house. And kill your whole family. And murder. And I get taken to court for that. And I get pulled before a judge, an earthly judge. And the judge begins to sentence me for my crime. And my defense for the crimes that I've committed, my defense is, but I helped an old lady carry her groceries in one time. Right? I've shoveled snow at Johnny's house. Right? I gave some money at Christmas time to the poor. Right? Like, I helped my friend move when all they paid me was in pizza. Right? All right, so I'm, I'm stacking my case. I said, would the judge still be good if he looked at my crimes and looked at the good things I did and said, you're not going to answer for these because you helped an old lady carry her groceries? I said, would not the judge, in order to be righteous, make me answer for what I've done? How much more the judge of the universe, when we have committed crimes, high crimes against his glory by not loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength, and where we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves, how would the judge of the universe not hold us guilty for the crimes we've committed? And he said, I've never thought about it like that. And I said, well, now you understand why we need Jesus. The sacrifice for our sins. Because the penalty of my crimes were poured out on him. And that's why we're saved. See, I go to the law to help bring a Muslim to his need for the gospel. Why? It ushers us to the doorstep. It ain't going to take him in. It's going to bring him to the place where he understands what he needs in grace. Does that make sense? I'll give you a Bible story. There was a man had leprosy. Think COVID, but turn it up a notch, right? It's old school cooties, skin disease, social distancing going on, like hardcore. And like he's got this thing. And the man comes to Jesus wanting to be clean. Jesus goes to reach out to him. 
And you get this idea that it's Jesus touching this guy with like the skin disease. It's like, no, Jesus. Like, he'll make you dirty if you touch him. And, and it, the man looks at him and says, I want to be clean. And Jesus says, I'm willing. Be clean. Touches the man, and the man is made clean. Right? And then he has him go show himself to the, high pri- or to the priesthood because the law said, if a man is made clean, what he is to do. Right? Y'all remember that story? Do you know what's fascinating about that? Do you know the law has details about what a man is to do if he's made clean, but it has absolutely no prescription for how to actually make one clean. It ain't no formula. There's nowhere in the law that says do this and it'll make somebody with leprosy clean. There is no priesthood um, command that the priest is to do this and it would make the person clean. All there is is their ability to react to somebody that's made clean. You know why? Because Jesus does what the law can't. Because Jesus does what the law can't. Let me tell you about my Jesus. Jesus loved God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind and all of his strength. Jesus loved his neighbor as himself. He, when we say he perfectly fulfilled the law, does that register for you what he did? His perfection in place of your imperfection. His purity in place of your uncleanness. The brother thinks, the scribe thinks that he is appraising God, but the truth of the matter is God is appraising him. He's close, but not close enough. And so Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom. And close church only works in horseshoes and hand grenades. It doesn't work for getting in the kingdom of God. And I'm always afraid that there are people who come week after week to church who set in services and think because they attend here or they had badges in Sunday school or because they go to Awana that they are in the kingdom but they have never entered in through Jesus. That's my fear. They're just close enough to leave the stinking door open. But by faith, they've never entered in. I love something John MacArthur says. There's only two types of people on the earth. The saints and the ain'ts. The saints are those lovers. Those lovers of God whose worship terminates on their Creator by grace through faith. And the others, like the rest of humanity, are those who have left their first love. Can I pray for you? Honesty between you and your Creator right now. Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Been brought into the kingdom by His Spirit and born, made born again? Or are you just 
close enough to convince yourself that you don't need Him because you've got all these good works stackpiled. Where are you at with the Lord Jesus Christ? Is He your first love? Your all-encompassing love? The center of your devotion? Or, is it, or are you like the rest of humanity that at best are just trying to add Him as one more thing next to your idols? The Bible says that today is a day of salvation. And if you've never come to Him in surrender, if you've never come like the scribe on any level in agreement with Him, I'd invite you to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved today. To trust Him with your heart and your soul, your strength and your mind and all that you are. And let Him make you in the person you were meant to be all along. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Come first with your kingdom in our own hearts, in our own minds, in the throne room of our being and take your seat. If there's even one here today who doesn't know you, hasn't trusted you, who's not far, but they're not close enough. Dear Heavenly Father, bring them into your kingdom. That's my prayer. God, if there's brothers and sisters here under the conviction of the Holy Spirit who have given you less than their all, who have a divided heart, who are protecting at all costs their idols. God, would you lovingly and graciously just kick down doors, rescue, save. God, would you make white-hot worshipers of your good name in this house. Teach us to love others as you've loved us. We pray that in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said Amen. Would you stand and respond?